Hello, and welcome to the Deck Arts Podcast. Today, I have with me another Parsons Cooper Hewitt Master's candidate. Um, Should I say your full name? You can just say Nicholas Lopes. Nicholas Lopes. Okay. Uh, We are going to be talking about graphic design and contemporary European-style board games, uh, which was the paper topic for Nick's class with Jeremy Ainsley's Issues in Graphic Design course. So why did you pick this topic? Um, so this was an interesting topic for me because it's one where I have sort of a very close personal relationship. Uh, I started playing, I actually play these games. I started playing them towards the end of high school. Um, sort of bought my first at the end of senior year, which was Seven Wonders. Um, and then a friend of mine, uh, Mark, who's also in high school, when we went to college together, we decided to start a club dedicated to these games. And we did. Um, and it's still going, uh, which is nice. It's grown. Um, I think they own like 100 games now. It's something crazy. Wow. Or maybe not that much, but in the tens for sure. Um, and so I've been very involved in the community. I buy games, uh, not many but, you know, one or two a year, and I have a lot of friends who I play with. I went to a board game convention in the summer, I mean, um, late May this year, uh, in Atlanta, Atlanta, uh, which was really nice. Um, It was three days, actually, I think it was, we were only there three days, but it was a five-day convention. Um, So, yeah, I chose the topic um, for this class, really almost on a whim because I was thinking of what I wanted to do graphic design related. And for a while I wasn't even thinking about board games. And I think it was because a friend of mine talked about going to this convention that the idea came into my mind that I wanted to write about these because the visuals of these games have always interested me. And so I was like, well, this is perfect. Um, So I picked it. Um, it was the first time I've actually ever written on like a contemporary type topic, so it was an experiment for me. Was it difficult to write about something that was contemporary? Or, um... Yeah, yes. Um, it, it definitely was because there actually isn't much written about them because not only are they contemporary and so haven't been subjected to much rigorous scholarship, but they're also pretty niche. Um, they're they're what called hobby games. They tend to operate within like small circles of people, well, small relatively, they can number like hundreds in one city, but, you know, um, they're basically treated like you would any other fandom, like any TV or video game fandom as a result, you know, people may be interested in them, but they may tend to write about more like cultural aspects, like how the social group works and not necessarily the objects themselves. And I found early on that when researching board games, the history of these games sort of stop in the mid-50s. And they don't write about games like After, which is very interesting. Yeah. Like they stop with Monopoly. That's weird. (laughs) Yeah. Were there... um, So, because I think the oldest one in this was 1965. Yeah. Um, And then... I think a lot of people, when they start talking about, like, the phenomenon of these sort of contemporary European-style board games, they really start talking about it from the mid-'90s on. Mm -hmm. 
um, with Settlers of Catan being the first, since it was such a sort of watershed moment when these when these board games went from being like maybe you have like a dozen people in any given major American city who are interested in it, and then this game took off, and suddenly you would get enormous groups of people playing. Yeah. And, and then it went international and so on from there. So, actually, to go off of the international part, because um, you brief, you explain the Euro games and what it means and the design and the type and how it differs from a regular Monopoly game, um, but could you explain why it's named European style? or And I, you talk about German style, too. Yeah, um... So, uh, the reason why it's called European style was when it took off in the mid nineties. Um, and even before then, when sort of the early versions of it were made in the late eighties, um, it was all activity centered in Germany. And when those games took off and, uh, and afterwards as some more games continued to become popular, they're all games whose makers were German. And so the type of board game that a Euro game is um, became associated with Europe because that's where all the game designers worked. That's where the games were being first published before they were being published internationally. Um, And this was sort of a way to contrast it with games like Monopoly and Risk, which all had American origins for the most part, or Risk, which actually was originally French, but then the most popular version of it came from America. Um, so it was called European style for that reason. It was called German style because all the designers were German at first. That's changed. Um, now the designers come from all over, but originally they were German. Um, and it's still, you know, Eurogame still uses the term because there are now terms, for instance, American style, uh, which is also called Ameritrash, which is a very interesting term, <laughs> but that's the other sort of niche game that's popular and they sort of like became popular simultaneously so it's that contrast between american style european style and now it's really like just technical because american style games can be designed in europe european style games can be designed in america or wherever but still the terms linger so what's an ameritrash american style game um risk is an example okay um and i guess it's sort of a a nice way to sort of contrast the two types of games is that Ameritrash games, which the term is really like, it started out being sort of a back formation from European style to sort of like, it was meant to be insulting uh, to talk about those casual American games. But now it's a more technical term for games that tend to, the rules are a little bit less meant to be intensely strategic. It's more supposed to be like a sort of, immersive experience type game where for instance like in a game like Arkham Horror which is a particularly famous example where you are fighting monsters and it's H.P. Lovecraft's mythos and the rules are very much sort of skewered so that you really feel like you're fighting like something mm-hmm. on your and so American style games are very much about theme they're about like these very sort of involved rules where you're really like playing through a type of story um and it's much more i guess it like it emphasizes more drama interplayer competition things like that whereas euro games tend to be much more abstract highly strategic uh 
players are meant to sort of not be too much in each other's way. Um, and so I guess, um, if we're talking about Eurogames, other con- things is, for instance, players aren't eliminated, which is another distinction. Like in risk, you can theoretically be wiped off the board, but in Euro games, you can't, it's okay. not part of the structure at all. Um, so yeah, I guess, um, Oh, chance is another thing. American-style games tend to allow for more chance elements to occur. Euro games, not so much, because they are so much about strategy and, like, playing with this very involved system that you're expected to know inside and out how it works. The game's not supposed to throw anything, like, too much in your way that you can't predict. Um, so, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't realize, since I haven't played... I've played an Ameritrash or American style game, but I haven't played a European style game before. So it's hard to picture all the pieces, but I think your paper did a really good job of explaining it because um, I didn't realize there was a difference between the game artists and the game graphic designers. And so I had never thought about that you have to size the images and figure out what's going to go on what piece and what the pieces are going to look like and um, I think if I read your paper right, the European style games, the theme could almost change, but the premise or the strategy of what you're supposed to do could ultimately stay the same. Yes, that is sort of a feature that is that is extremely interesting about Euro games and most other types of board games. Rules are meant to interrelate with theme. Like, maybe the theme is even picked first and the rules are based on that. Like I mentioned, like, you know, Arkham Horror, you know, I don't know, a zombie fighting game. Like, those would be like, well, we want to structure the rules so that when you interact with monsters, like, they, the monsters behave like a zombie or a sea serpent or whatever would. Um, or if you're doing, like, a murder mystery type game, you know, like, the rules function a certain way if you're trying to play through a murder mystery. But with Euro games, there really is often the case where the mechanics are come up with first or the rules are developed first. And the theme may come in the middle. It may come towards the end. It may come at the beginning. um, But in the end, the rules are still somewhat detached. And so uh, there's often the, I wouldn't say accusation, but the comment that Euro games are themeless. And so when they try to be like, oh, where's this game is set in ancient Egypt. You could say, well, it could also have been rewritten and to be set in Celtic England and the game would still play the same. So in that regard, um, graphic designers and I guess maybe even game artists may have more responsibility here since they come up with like the pictorial aspects like character art, landscapes and so on. Um, they really have a burden to like really sell the theme, like make it connect in the player's mind with what they're playing. Since in the end it is such an abstract system that it could be anything. Um, they could have made it about anything, but they picked this. And so they have to sell it. Yeah. So do you think most people who buy these games are buying based on the rules or the, uh, graphic design of the game? The rules. Um, depending on the game designer, which is the person who actually designs like the rules, 
and how they're going to how the game actually plays. Some of these have attained enough celebrity in the game hobby circle in the game fandom that people will buy a game because of the game designer because they know game designers will tend to favor certain mechanics. Some of them may even favor certain themes, but mostly it's about the mechanics. It's about like, you know, when they ask like, what sort of game is this? When they're looking to buy, they'll be like, oh, it's a worker placement game. It's an area control game. It's a tile laying game, like mechanic based descriptions of the game, not, oh, it's a medieval game. It's a science fiction game. It's not like that. Um, so yeah, it's definitely theme first. Uh, I'm not theme first, the exact opposite, sorry. <laughs> mechanics first um i tend to buy also because of theme but um that's just i'm just that's just me i'm weird no i well it seems he i i forget when he did the study but someone did a study when it it said like strategic depth and then the replayability those were like the two most and then the last was like graphical presentation which i thought was interesting because um they are so cool to look at. Like the what was the one that I really liked? It was the the Cold War. Oh, Twilight one? Struggle. Yeah, Twilight Struggle, which for a long time was number one um, ranked on the on Board Game Geek, which is like the big um, fandom center internationally for the Eurogame fandom. Um, it, it is interesting that the study he did the graphical presentation was listed so low as being like a main like buying interest on the part of people or being so low as a reason that people played these games and yet there's still this standard that these games are held to that they look good and people really want these games to look good even if somehow it doesn't factor in the end into how much they enjoyed playing they still want to play a good looking game yeah um so yeah, it's a very interesting sort of expectation. <laughs> I know it's sort of the opposite of how you think of most consumerism is that the last would be the visual. <laughs> um, so I guess I kind of also want to talk about um, the relationship between crowd crowdfunding sites and the board games because I thought that was really interesting. And is that how these board games are uh, funded or... So, yeah, I mentioned in my paper Scythe, which has been a big success. It raised over a million on Kickstarter, um, I think. And Scythe is made by, what is it, Stonemeyer Games, which is a company that got their start. The designer, Jamie Stegmeyer, designed a game called Viticulture, which he crowdfunded on Kickstarter. And that was so successful that he was able to start sort of a publishing company. And pretty much all the games in that were crowdfunded. That is a very recent development. I would say past, like maybe got started whenever Kickstarter got started. Um, Traditionally, these games were self-funded. There were some publishers, of course, who would fund games. Um, but But the crowdfunding thing has kicked off for sure in the same way that it has for other things like video games um and there are a lot of games nowadays that are very popular it's really got its own sort of 
sort of like there's now that more and more board games are being kickstarted and indie, well, primarily kickstarted, like there's this entire like hype engine that's developed based around this. We're like, like one thing I was very surprised when I went to this convention is how many times people were interested in playing games because they knew it was kickstarted and was kickstarted successfully or that had, it had raised so much on Kickstarter um, or like, Oh, is this the new like Kickstarter game? Like, type dialogue so yeah in that way it's very been very successful the relationship these board games have with these crowdfunding sites and like the still the majority of board games are not crowdfunded but the ones that are they they tend to succeed yeah (laughs) um and it's interesting because i think it's also sort of promoted this new sort of way of even producing these games where now, because Kickstarters have these, like, you have backer levels, right, on Kickstarter. So you would have, like, originally you just have one version of a board game. But now, because of Kickstarter and backer levels, you'd have, like, oh, here's the version that's being mass-produced. Here's the special Kickstarter version for those who backed it. And it will have, like, more elaborate components. Like, for instance, if the, if the game has, like, coins in it, the mass-produced version will have cardboard coins, but the kickstarted version will have metal coins. Or the mass-produced version will have, um, if they have like little character figures that you like move around, those will be cardboard on stand. Or, the, but the kickstarted version will have three D printed versions for like the special backers, and so these limited edition super extra special versions are now like also appearing and now it's also like do you have the kickstarter version or do you just have the regular version and like if you have the kickstarter version it's like oh i want to play the kickstarter version because it's like a more tactile visually impressive immersive experience which is again like if graphical presentation is so low on people's lists of why they enjoy games nevertheless the fact that there's this more elaborate version people want to play it all the same yeah, that's um, interesting. Yeah. Have you ever bought a, or help, gotten a Kickstarter one? No, but I have played a Kickstarter version of a game, and it's definitely interesting to see like how they choose to make their game a little bit more special for those who were willing to give a little bit more money Yeah. to support it. That's interesting that they do that. Um, so I guess then is the artists still designing those 3d figures or does that become more of who's creating the games like the person who then manufactures them? that's one thing with specifically with the figurines that i was a little less certain of the problem with finding sources um is trying to find sources that differentiated between the two roles because there was a differentiation between game artist and game graphic designer for instance on when credit listings and rule books, for example, there was always the distinction, even though both their work could be seen as a form of graphic design and the way that illustration can be seen as a form of graphic design. Um, the figurines, eh, I think it would be based on the game artist art, but maybe the, like the prototyping, the creation of sort of the, whatever data file would be sent to the machine to actually print the thing 
that may be a collaboration between the graphic designer and the publisher and the figurine manufacturer. Because these games, like a lot of things, takes multiple people to make. Like you could point to any one graphic element, say a card, and it would be the game designer, the rule maker, who decided how he wanted the layout of the card to look and what sort of symbols would be on the card. Then the game artist would come and do the illustration that would be on the card. The nice little scene that will like let you picture yourself in whatever situation the card's describing. And then the graphic designer will make the type, the card border, would format the illustration to the card, would add, bo- I said borders already, any other ornamental details, the symbols, and then the publisher would have final say, for example, and would probably decide, like, maybe even have decided early on, like, what the printing quality would be. Uh, and what the component quality would be, which would, of course, have an effect on how many colors and whatnot would be allowed and things like that. So, like, with any given thing, there's, like, four people involved. Yeah. And all these games, also, if you've never seen one laid out, there are so many pieces. It's really impressive that they... Because they're all different sizes. It's not like you're making a deck of cards and then you can reformat the image to that same size. It's you're really form. It's very specific and specified, which I think is um, an attribute to like the artist and that they're thinking about all these things and how it goes into the game. Um, but then, is are these games applicable to online play? Oh yeah. Um... There's definitely been a secondary industry popping up of apps that have digitized the game, essentially. I actually have two on my phone right now um, for two different games where you basically you can play it by yourself against AI opponents or you can play it online. And then on Steam, there's a very popular app. Very popular. I think like it's been like the top 50 games downloaded called Tabletop Simulator. And that is a place where players themselves who have tech savvy can essentially choose whatever board game they like and using the components within Tabletop Sim and like graphic files they download off of BoardGameGeek or company websites or whatever, they'll essentially make the game in this program and then open it up so that anyone online can play it. So I've played games the same game both in person and online through, like, you know, the internet, essentially. Yeah. Um, and you basically, yeah, all the graphic components are reproduced and everything, and it's it's big. It's it's definitely big. Um, so, yeah, online play for sure. Um, and because this program's so versatile, any Euro game essentially can be transformed in this way into an, a game that can be played online. Um, um, so my, I think the Twilight Struggle one is available online. Most of them are available online, actually. Does it, do the graphics translate as well as they do in person or do you think that they kind of lack since it's so many moving parts and stuff? Well, I mean, when you play online, you do to some extent lose the tactile quality. Um, I mean, you can't physically take any piece and hold it up to your face to, like, study it. But, um, 
for the most part, it does translate pretty well since, you know, most of the images are flat. And so it's very easy to just sort of apply them to whatever sort of in digital asset you need to. Um, yeah. I mean, based on personal experience, I think it's still fun yeah. to like play a game online <laughs> and like the graphics still translate pretty well. So, And do the games work out the same because they're so in, so strategic, is it more difficult then to know what someone else is doing if you can't be there in person? Like, um, wow, that actually kind of moves on from the visual aspects a bit to more like the social thing. I mean, it's the difference between when you're say playing a like a game like I don't know Mario Kart or whatever in person on like where for you are on a couch playing on the same TV and you can talk with each other and ch- and like chide each other and like joke each other and like try and persuade each other to do stupid things <laughs> versus playing a game online where you're communicating through a headset and um to some extent communication's a little stiffer for some odd reason like it's still there but it's a little less natural because you're missing that human element, I guess. But um, for the most part, because so many of these games, you place every like everything is, most things are visible to every player. Like when a player puts a piece down, you can see it, whether you're playing in person or online. Um, that in the end, like things like knowing what other players are doing, um, for the most part, it doesn't change instance yeah which yeah so strategy in the end still happens more or less the same way yeah that makes sense it's kind of translates to all games if you're playing with someone or not um so what do you think the future holds for these games do you think some of them the original versions will i i don't know if they already have been become collector's items because do they come out with multiple editions and update the images or I mean, our printing has become so, has changed so much from 1995. So. They do get updated, for sure. Um, For instance, Settlers of Catan, probably the most famous, most well-known example. It's called for, it's called a gateway game because so many people found their way into the fandom through playing a game like that or as popular as that. And there really aren't that many as popular as that. That's already gone through five reprints. And each one looks visually different from the other. And a little, it's a little better. I have, I think, the third edition. I think it looks really nice. Still holds up visually. The fifth edition just sort of, I guess, made some minor polishes. But doesn't really change the third edition that much. But if you compare it to the first edition, the 1995 edition, oh yes, it's a massive improvement. Um, I think a lot of that is also due to the fact that we're now firmly in the age where most art or a lot of art is done digitally and in board game industry, for sure, most board game art and graphic design is done digitally. Um, so a lot of games that maybe were made sort of pre that era, um, have been updated in that regard. There are one or two games like, um, El Grande, which is also from 1995 that has not had a reprint. Um, 
or not a reprint that updates it graphically, like it's still being produced, but they're still using the original 1995 game art. Uh, it looks, I guess, color-wise, it's a little washed out compared to some of the games you see now, which tend to be more colorful, but otherwise it still looks good. Um, and in the end, I think like serviceability, just as long as the graphics aren't confusing and you can play the game without wondering what the heck this symbol means or why this space is colored this way or so on. Um, as long as you're not confused by the visuals and they aren't just completely ugly, like skeletal, like you're not looking at a chessboard. I think in the end it's fine. Um, but certainly since these games have gotten big and are already, a lot of them are like 20 years old, the first editions are collector's items. And to be honest, some of them are like priced like as if they're collector's items anyway. Like <laughs> you can have games that are over $100 that are new. Wow. Um, so yeah, just owning one is like, you're the person in the group who has it. No one else is going to buy it. So they're going to rely on you to play it. <laughs> because they're the only one who can afford it. Um, so that's yeah. That's the sort of relationship that's happening there. Yeah, that's interesting. That that's I didn't realize that they were a hundred dollars for oh, yeah. some of them. The certain well, ones. it's like you said. There's so many pieces in some of them. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Um, yeah. Yeah, and you're kind of you got to really make sure you don't lose your pieces. Oh yeah. Yeah, you're in trouble. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, gamers are pretty uh, pretty overprotective of their games sometimes. There's a lot of trust, especially if you're lending a game to somebody to play and you're not going to be playing with them. There's trust involved, for sure. Yeah, definitely get that. If you're paying $100, I would be cracking the whip, too. Bring it all back in one piece. So is there anything about this paper, like, as you're doing your research, that since you are a part of this community that maybe surprised you that you didn't expect to surprise you? Yes. Uh, when I've, There's one book on Eurogames that has been written. Uh, Stuart Wood's Eurogames that was written in 2012. And it's a pretty good one, to be honest. Um, really goes into the history of these games sort of why they developed in the first place from a cultural perspective, which I thought was interesting, not really something I'd considered before. Um, but in some of his descriptions of the games, I was a little surprised. For instance, he described um, Eurogames, he would say, for example, that the rules, that Eurogames tend to prize simple rules that engage complexly, which I guess is true. When I think of the most prized Euro games, they some of them do have this quality. And yet, I've played a lot of Euro games where the rules are not simple. Absolutely not. They're a chore to learn. It's fun once you eventually know them and that moment clicks where you're like, oh, I get how everything interacts and everything, but they're not simple. I think more and more... Since so many, it's hard to like come up with an original way of playing. Um, to come up with a mechanic that's never been done before. The emphasis now is on having a lot of 
mechanics interact in unusual ways or in innovative ways and in having one mechanic that's especially innovative. So your games are becoming a little bit more complex rule-wise. Um, so that's one thing. He also said, for example, that many Euro games like play in an hour to an hour and a half, which is also not true. Um, again, I think more and more Euro games are being made that are like two, three, four hours to play. Um, uh, they'll talk. He'll talk, for example, about how the vast majority of Euro games have themes that are historical, which is true. But one thing I think that has happened since 2012, when he wrote the book, is more more games are becoming fantasy, are having fantasy themes, and also science fiction themes and alternate history themes. Like if you think like it's set in ancient Egypt, but there's actual gods and involved and they're actually real and they interact with you or like Scythe, which is a big one. I think I mentioned earlier with the crowdfunding that one's set in post world war one Europe, except there's mechs now like in Pacific rim, like, you know, those giant robots manned by people, but now it's post world war one Europe. Um, and they're, they're around. (laughs) Um, that's definitely happening more, I think. Um, which is, I think, affecting graphics a little bit. Um, since now it's become involving a lot more like fantasy illustrators and science fiction illustrators are getting involved more and more in these games. Do you think that's maybe based off or is, runs parallel to sort of the, uh, fantasy um, game, video games and their popularity or do is there any correlation between like the video game fads and the board game fads? Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, I think there's for sure overlap um, because a lot of board gamers do also play video games or at least most that I know personally. I have met a lot of people who play these board games that I would not expect to play video games. Um, I have met uh, Euro game fans who are from preteens to over 70. So I don't know how many people over, like, I don't know, 50 play video games. But I know a a large amount of the board game fandom is in the 20s and 30s, and I know... A lot of people who are 20 and 30 years old today play video games. So certainly I think that board game designers and publishers are aware that currently in video games there are a lot of fantasy and science fiction themed games. Um, And also there are more like licensed type games where it's actual like actual fantasy and scientific science fiction properties like Star Trek or Lord of the Rings are having, or Star Wars are having Eurogame versions made. I know a big one released last year was called Star Wars Rebellion, for example, I think is a Eurogame. I may be wrong about that. It may be American style. But in any case, there's definitely an interlocking there. But I don't know. Because certainly there were a lot of fantasy and science fiction video games being produced in the 90s, and yet Euro games from the beginning like the historical themes. So I don't know. I don't know. 
maybe yes, maybe it's just part of a larger cultural interest in fantasy and science fiction that may be driving it, rather than video games specifically. But yeah, there's definitely they're definitely intertwined, the video game and Eurogame fandom. That's interesting. It's cool to read about um, your paper because it's not something I have ever read before, but um, everyone listening, I'll post some of the links that um, he sent me, like, what is it, Game Game Seeker? Board Game Geek? Board Game Geek. I'll post that, and then um, um, there's a couple sites that I was reading just to familiarize myself, and I'll post those, but thank you so much for coming by and, like, talking to us and... This is a topic that I don't think I've ever read about, so I don't think any of my listeners will have read about it either. (laughs) Thank you. No, for sure.